0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Governor Jared Polis got married this week to first gentleman Marlon Reese.
1: We've obviously been together a long time. When we got together, we were in our 20s. Now we're in our 40s. And, you know, when we were in our 20s, marriage wasn't even a possibility.
0: Today, we look back on the fight for marriage equality in what used to be called the hate state. Our guest, the first openly gay speaker of the Colorado House, Mark Ferrandino, who fought to create civil unions. Then the art playground, Meow Wolf, opens in Denver.
2: You've heard of minimalism. Meow Wolf's philosophy is maximalism. There is just stuff everywhere to look at, touch, play with.
0: We'll meet three artists who injected a flavor of old Denver, paying homage to bygone places like Celebrity Sports Center and the Cinderella City Mall.
3: If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start?
1: What is the state's most iconic food?
4: Why does Peña Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it?
0: These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Cory Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Governor Jared Polis is now a married man. On Wednesday, he and first gentleman Marlon Reese tied the knot.
1: I popped the question in December when Marlon had COVID and was going to the hospital. So before he went to the hospital, I wanted to make sure he knew he was engaged. And at that point, you know, they didn't allow visitors in the hospital for COVID. And he only had to spend two days there. It got better, thankfully. But uh, obviously, that was a pretty low period, but it was punctuated by the uh, the exciting part of us getting formally engaged, uh, and we're excited that we just got married.
0: The small private ceremony took place during the Jewish High Holy Days. Paulus and Reese are both Jewish. Here's Reese.
5: It's an interesting coincidence that the wedding uh, was held on uh, Yom Kippur because in the Jewish tradition, Uh, It's the time when, as a Jew, you're supposed to renounce false vows. I'm the type I look for things in the universe that, you know, sort of affirm that I'm doing the right thing. And I thought that there was something beautifully symbolic about the idea that we would be renouncing false vows, whatever we had, you know, uh, said in the past year you know, that that we didn't actually believe in. And instead, we would be actually taking vows to one another, which is the ultimate vow, you know, the vow to be together forever, to care about each other and support one another.
0: This union would have been illegal in Colorado as recently as 2014. Same-sex marriage was prohibited here, first in statute, then voters enshrined the ban in the state constitution, Until courts struck these prohibitions down. Today, we'll take stock of that evolution with a former Speaker of the Colorado House who fought for marriage equality. Mark Ferrandino is also a gay man in a long term relationship with a kid who, like the governor and his husband, remains in the public eye. Ferrandino currently leads the Colorado Department of Revenue. Mark, thank you for being with us.
6: Thank you, Ryan, for having me. It's always a pleasure.
0: I'd like to start by challenging the premise of this interview Is it a big deal? that an openly gay governor is getting married while in office? Or has society moved past needing to mark a milestone like this?
6: It's a big deal because it's not a big deal. That's what the milestone is, is in the fact that it's just ordinary, not a big deal. That is a milestone of itself. And I think that's as a community where we want it to get, where marriage between any two loving people was something that wasn't an issue, just like any other governor across the country is getting married. It would make news in the state that they're getting married, but probably not making national news.
0: Mark, I think you moved to Colorado from Washington, D.C. when your partner, now husband, landed a job here. That was in 05, right?
6: Uh, it was in 03. Yes. 03. Okay. Got in, uh, in Colorado and moved here from D.C.
0: State lawmakers, by that point, had already banned same-sex marriage here. And then, in two thousand six, voters made it <laughs> illegaler, more illegal by placing the ban in the Colorado Constitution. Did that make you have misgivings about coming here?
6: You know, Colorado, when I uh, has a long history being known as the hate state, you know, when I told my father I was moving to Colorado um, and I was out to my family, he was surprised and worried, given the history of amendment two The statutory prohibition to marriage, he was concerned being from New York. It's a little more progressive than Colorado was at the time. That being said, it's amazing how far we've come to today from where we started.
0: Amendment two, just for some history, prohibited any governments in Colorado at any level from passing any sorts of protections for LGBTQ people. Uh, That was eventually struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. So you say that Colorado has come a long way. I'll just point out that you became the first openly gay speaker of the House, and you were the first openly gay male state lawmaker in 07. And about four years into your tenure, in 2011, you sponsored a bill to create civil unions in Colorado, allowing for state recognition of couples separate from marriage because at that time again it was banned in statute and in the constitution civil unions failed the first few go rounds what stands out to you about that fight mark
6: you know yeah it, it did we lost it twice before we passed it the third time and you know there was a lot of work going on to build support for marriage equality but also lgbt equality so whether it was public accommodations or employment non-discrimination, second parent adoption. There was a lot of work by people all over the community to move the ball forward. I think one of the biggest things that happened between the first bill where it died on civil unions to three years later was more and more people were coming out and talking to people about being gay and the importance of having equal rights. And people met with their legislators, they got to see that this was not a big issue, um, and we were able to get people from across the aisle of Republicans to support us. And even if you remember, the first time it failed, it died in committee. The second time it failed, it died on the floor of the House after it passed the Senate in a last, you know, second to last day of session where we stopped the actions on the floor. I was minority leader at the time, and. We ended up trying to get it passed with Republican support, but the speaker wouldn't let it come to the floor. So 40 bills died that night. And the next day, Governor Hickenlooper called for a special session where we introduced civil unions again. It died in committee. And then you know, we were in the minority as the Democratic party. We worked hard um, over the election cycle, took back the house. I became elected speaker of the house. And then we were able to pass civil unions, um, which is a momentous day for the community and for our state.
0: Civil unions, uh, which was a a precursor to same-sex marriage. I think it was Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg who once referred to civil unions and similar arrangements as skim milk marriage. Did you take advantage of civil unions, Mark Ferrandino, when they became legal in Colorado?
6: Yes, as soon as they came legal, my husband and I actually had a ceremony on the balcony of the house floor and had our civil union. So, and we still have that to today.
0: Oh, you still have the civil union. You've not been officially married?
6: We haven't taken that next step. We haven't seen the need for it. We have the protections under law. So, you know, I think at some point we'll get around to it. But at the same point, it's really important that all loving couples have access to full marriage, and each couple should make a decision. And I I also think it's important for heterosexual couples to have access to civil unions or marriage as well. And Mm -hmm. so that's something under our law that is open to anyone.
0: Right. I mean, the conversation largely moved on to same-sex marriage, but civil unions still exist in Colorado and some other states. You can enter into one. I want to point out that as recently as 2020, last year, Four Republicans at the State House tried unsuccessfully to make gay marriage illegal again in Colorado. The bill would have prevented gay couples from adopting as well. Now, this is in contrast to the record support that there is for same-sex unions nationwide. Gallup says it's up to 70% now. But that does leave 30%, presumably, who think that, you know, your union mark shouldn't exist. Do you encounter those folks? And and if so, what what do you tell them?
6: You know, I, I'm lucky that I haven't had anyone who's come up to me and talked to me about they don't think what I'm doing is right or it should be legal. I, I will tell a story. When I was, we were passing civil unions, I remember sitting next to an individual who was testifying. And that person was talking about how a gay couple or uh, lesbian couple who had a child was performing child abuse by raising them in a same-sex couple, and I just remember I just after he stopped speaking, I just got up, walked out of the room because I just needed to take a break and catch my my composure because you know at that time we had our daughter, and it was it's hard to sit there, especially for parents and hear that from someone. And, hmm. you know, it took me my breath away. Um, so I've had that experience, especially when I was in the legislature, but now I haven't as much, um, which is good. Cause I agree, with, we've seen such a change in the, the view. That doesn't mean there aren't gonna be legislators who are still gonna fight a battle that you know. hopefully they will always lose. But it's also incumbent on the community, the LGBT community and the broader allies to continue to push and ensure that that 30% gets smaller and doesn't grow so that we continue to protect the rights that we work so hard to be able to have.
0: How was it, and I suppose is it, given your current job with the state, how how is it to be a gay couple in the public eye and maybe compare that to now versus like the the mid-aughts?
6: Yeah, it definitely um, is much easier now than it was, Um, When I first was running, part of it was the newness of it. And everyone was so interested in, you know, I was the first gay man. People wanted to know the story, wanted to frame myself as a gay legislator. And I always tried to push back to say I'm a legislator who happens to be gay. Hmm. Now, because LGBT community is so ingrained in the community and not something seen as different as much, Still in some places, especially with the trans community, there's a lot of work we need to do to get broader acceptance with the trans community. But it just isn't as big of a deal. When I started in politics of if people know I'm gay, what is their reaction going to be? What am I going to have to deal with? Do I want to share this with them or not? Now, there's no problem with sharing it, especially in the Denver metro area. I feel very comfortable. And as you said, I'm a very public figure. People know who I am. And so I, I don't shy away from sharing it, but I've not had that, had interactions that have concerned me when I was out in the community. And especially with my daughter, um, when we adopted her, I always remember people would come up to me and her and ask, oh, where's your mom? And she just look up to them and go, I don't have a mom. I have two dads. And then just walk off. <laughs> and I was just, and almost every time like, okay. And people would just accept and move on, which is just a great place to be.
0: Well, it's interesting. Subtle, you said that you really feel comfortable in Metro Denver. Are you speaking to some extent to two Colorados here?
6: You know, there's nowhere in Colorado I would probably feel uncomfortable. Um, I've traveled the state. I've traveled with my husband and my daughter. You know, there are places that I probably would maybe see more pushback or someone say something. Um, But in So many, 70%, as you said, public supports same-sex marriage. And I think that is what we're going to see, if not higher in Colorado than in, you know, the nation might be 70%. Colorado is probably well in the 80%. So I feel very comfortable in Colorado. But there are places in this country where if I was going, I do look over my shoulder. I look and see what's going on. Am I in a place that I'm comfortable? You know, well, while I also say Colorado, I feel very safe. That doesn't mean that we haven't had hate crimes where gay men have been beaten, trans people have been beaten in Colorado. So it happens and we still need to, you know, work to change the hearts and minds of individuals across uh the country.
0: You you talk about changing hearts and minds and to reference something you said earlier, which was that you think people coming out helps. That is If you know a gay person, perhaps you're more likely to accept a gay person if that person's in your family or your friend group. Uh, And you no doubt worked with lawmakers whose views evolved on gay marriage. What, What do you think tends to change people's minds? Is it the coming out, kind of like what Harvey Milk called on for people to do back in the day?
6: Yeah, I think that is the biggest reason people change their mind is when they know someone who is gay, lesbian, transgender, because they just, they see someone who they know who's their friend and they come out and they're like, oh, this person's no different than what I knew them two seconds ago before they told me. And that's like, oh, maybe the thought I had about who the other was, the gay person, is different because now I know someone and they're not other than me. They're not different than me. I think that has done a lot. But I also will say, I think, portrayal of LGBT community within the media, public opinion. You know, it's interesting to see as it from my daughter's eyes and what's going on in, in schools, the acceptance, the difference. You know, when I was a kid, we had a high school of 1600 kids. I knew I was gay, but I wasn't out. We had one kid who was out, but he, the, the bullying being picked on that still happens today, but it's much different. We have much broader acceptance. We have so many more people coming out at a younger age and being able to express who they are and not have to deal with the, oh my gosh, did someone find out or what's going on? And that, that stress of adolescence that's already stressful. And when you're trying to hide who you are, it just becomes even harder. And that still happens, but we need to con- and continue to work there, especially with you know GSAs and other things at schools.
0: GSAs, Gay Straight Alliances, Mark, I think you were born in 77, I was born in 78, and I remember one openly gay kid in my high school, and I too was in the closet, and I think that I was more in shock or more surprised by the fact that there was an openly gay kid at my high school, I think even than straight kids felt i thought it was so bold and in a way to me so foreign that someone would openly embrace that i mean that that's how dangerous the environment felt you know does that resonate
6: oh completely and i you know i would not even come close to being friends with him because i mm. was too worried someone would think that i was gay and so i made sure that you know my friend circles and other weren't associated with him you know, and that probably was very, a lot of kids who were trying to hide who they were at that time. And it's great. We've made a lot of progress, um, but there's still more to go.
0: Thank you so much for being with
6: us. Thank you, Ryan, for having me.
0: Mark Ferrandino was the first openly gay speaker of the Colorado House. He successfully fought for civil unions before gay marriage became legal. Ferrandino, who lives in Denver, now leads the Colorado Department of Revenue. And we spoke in light of Governor Jared Polis's marriage to First Gentleman Marlon Reese. Fort Lewis College in Durango is taking steps to address its whitewashed history, which has been reflected in signage. You may recall that on our show's recent road trip, we talked about plans to remove storyboard panels from the college's clock tower. CPR's Paolo Chalceda has this update from southwest Colorado.
7: The smell of ceremonial cedar smoke filled the air as hundreds of students, faculty, and tribal leaders gathered in the middle of Fort Lewis College to watch as campus leaders rectify their history. Underneath the college's iconic clock tower, a series of panels that glossed over its past as an Indian boarding school were removed.
8: And so by removing those panels, we are beginning a new era in the history of the college and the evolution of the institution. And it's also acknowledging the trauma that was invoked. And then it's also time to begin the process of healing.
7: That was Lee Bitsui, a Navajo citizen and associate vice president of student affairs at Fort Lewis. He co-chaired the committee that recommended the panel's removal. For years, students, activists, and tribal leaders have pointed out the flaws of three panels in particular. They portray the Indian boarding school as a prestigious academy with, quote, extremely good literary instruction, completely ignoring the forced assimilation of indigenous children. I was there to watch the panels come down organizers asked that I not record, to show respect to tribes who were there. One person there told me the event had the tone of a funeral. After all, we were on the site of what college leaders described as a cultural genocide." Noah Shadlow, an Osage student studying education, led a drumming group at the ceremony. The first song they played was a morning song, dedicated to all the indigenous youth killed at boarding schools. It's, it's Ponca language, but it's talking to Osages, saying, you Osages, all you Osages, look at your children. Take care of their every need, watch over them, protect them from all harm. As the ceremony went on, it transformed into a celebration, not only of history being rectified, but of indigenous culture. The second song Shadow performed was a victorious chant written by a former student.
8: It's a, it's a good song to use for that because it's, it's just kind of
9: like a good like energy song and kind of brings that spiritual feeling out.
7: There were over 350 federally-run boarding schools at the turn of the 20th century. Three of them were in Colorado. Native American children were forced to give up their languages, clothing, and religion there. One school in Hesperus eventually became Fort Lewis College. Since becoming a public university, they've worked hard to rebuild relationships with tribes. Over one-third of the student population is indigenous, and according to the Department of Education, it awards more degrees to indigenous students than any other four-year college in the nation. But signs of its traumatic past, like the panels, are still present. For Fort Lewis College President Tom Stritikis, the rest of the work starts now.
0: We'll continue to do curricular work. Uh, We've been recently supported by a large grant from the Andrew Mellon Foundation to build a curriculum around the boarding school.
7: Eventually, Fort Lewis will remove the remaining nine panels underneath the clock tower and display them at the Center for Southwest Studies, a museum on campus. The History Committee hasn't decided what to do with the space, but they know one thing for sure. They won't move forward without student input.
1: We will have a student who will be working
0: with those panels to tell the history of the boarding school in a more accurate way
7: involving Native American students, non-Native American students. Bitsui already has some ideas.
8: And one thought is to create some panels, possibly with indigenous
7: artwork or additional information that we can provide for guests and visitors to our campus. The entire state is grappling with its oppressive history with Native Americans and taking steps to make up for it. Melvin Baker, chairman of the Southern New Tribe, said Fort Lewis College and Colorado can act as role models for other communities having similar discussions.
8: And I think as we move forward, it's just we can do better. We can always
7: do better for tomorrow. Over 170 tribal nations are represented at Fort Lewis College, thanks to a program that waives tuition for indigenous students. I'm Paolo Shasta, CPR News. Could
0: you use a getaway? We can't put you on a plane to Paris or negotiate a sabbatical with work, but we can invite you to read with us.
8: You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this.
0: We have chosen the new thriller from Colorado's Peter Heller. Get a copy of The Guide and then join us September 30th for a virtual, interactive conversation with the author. This means you can be in your pajamas and ask Peter questions from home. His novel is set at an exclusive fly-fishing lodge in Colorado, and like his previous books, it's about nature and human nature. So get your hands on The Guide, and then get your free tickets, again, to the virtual event at cpr.org slash page. CPR.org slash turn the page. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour as we immerse you in Meow Wolf. I'm Ryan Warner here with CPR News and KRCC.
6: I'm Francie Swidler, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. It was a 2004 Nissan Pathfinder. It was a really cool car at a certain period in time. And it has seen some things. So it was time for the car to get off the street anyway. And I knew that it would make me feel okay about saying goodbye. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today's the day Denver's Meow Wolf opens to the public after four years of construction, creativity, craftsmanship, More than 300 artists contributed. Just over a third are from Colorado. This immersive experience is known as Convergence Station, a galactic multiverse that will have you unlock memories with a card, walk through an enchanted space forest, and explore a frozen civilization. We're going to meet the team of artists behind one vignette, Andrew Novick, Pamela Webb and Rob Ayala. And welcome to the three of you.
8: Thank you. Thanks. Brian, good to see you.
0: I understand that you drew inspiration from several shuttered Denver landmarks. And I thought I'd have each of you tell us about one landmark you paid homage to. Pamela, you want to start?
2: Sure. I'll start with Celebrity Sports Center. This was my favorite piece to build, it was the hardest piece to build. But it's a homage to the sign that used to be in front of the Celebrity Sports Center, which was a giant, like, Dave & Buster's or um, Punchbowl social kind of place where you could bowl and you could swim. There was a water slide and there were video games and snacks and people smoked inside. This was like, you know, early Denver. <laughs> and uh, not that that was a good thing about it, but... Um, And so we built one of the stars, the big uh, 20-pointed geometric stars that were on the sign out front. So it's not super obvious. And if you see it, it might just jog a memory and it might be later on when you're falling asleep that you go, I think that was from Celebrity Sports Center. So it was the most fun piece to build by far.
0: I am fascinated by the ownership group behind the original Celebrity Sports Center: George Burns, Bing Crosby, Jack Benny, and I think Walt Disney was one of the original yes. investors. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Andrew Novik, uh, tell me about a, a a former Denver landmark that you integrated into your artistic vision.
8: I'll tell you about Denver Drumstick. It was a fried chicken restaurant. Uh, It was a chain here. So there were several locations and it was very kind of homey. Like there was a bunch of dining rooms in there. So it was meant to be like you're at home in your dining room eating chicken with your family. But there was also a train, a toy train that would go around up near the ceiling and it would come through each room and then go through like a little mouse hole tunnel to the next room. So every several minutes, the train would come through and everyone would get really excited that the train is coming back through.
0: How did you integrate the imagery from this poultry forward restaurant?
8: Yeah, so we fabricated the sign. Pamela is an awesome metal worker, and we built these old school signs. Then we put like a metal vintage train on top. And then we actually graffitied the train, as you might see a, a train around graffiti with our monikers on uh, each one of us, picked a car and put our signatures on there.
0: Oh, I see. This is a, this is a little Easter egg from the artists. Yeah. And uh, Rob, I understand you grew up just blocks from where Meow Wolf is located, but I, I, I think I'm going to force you to tell us about one venue in particular that you paid homage to, which is the old Cinderella City Mall. Did you go there as a kid?
1: Absolutely. used to go there in the 80s. Um, it was a really cool mall. They had different levels, um, and the basement was really cool because it looked like an old alleyway. And so in the basement, there was the magic shop, Zizo's magic shop. There was a pizza parlor. There was Fantastic Nathan's. There was an arcade. And so all the kids would go out down there and hang out. And it was just a really big mall that um, we all used to just go to and kind of just hang out as kids.
0: There's a kind of subculture of people who adore old, moribund malls. And there are so many beautiful, incredible photos of Cinderella Silly Mall with Like it's various colors and areas.
1: Yeah, Andrew was telling me that there's like a 3D experience, kind of like an immersive experience that you can go to see the old Cinderella mall.
0: How did you integrate the idea of this mall into your work?
1: There was a bunch of old signs that used to hang in the basement and kind of like the old wooden signs. I don't know if you've seen the Cinderella sign in Mielwolf, have you?
0: I have not yet seen it, so you're going to describe it for me like many of our listeners who have not yet been through the hallowed Meow Wolf Denver halls,
1: It's kind of like an old English font and it's treated wood hanging right above the ramen area, like in Sea Station.
0: Wait, you can't just say ramen area and not explain what that is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's like this little ramen restaurant shop inside Meow Wolf and Sea Station. And uh, it has like this huge bowl of ramen right above it. And our sign is literally just to the left of it. Hanging right over the the ATMs, they have like ATMs all over, futuristic ATMs.
0: Okay, not ones you actually withdraw money from.
1: No, they're for memories. They're the memory uh, machines.
2: Access to memory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: You've made reference to C Street, Pamela. What C Street?
2: Uh, so C Street's on the fourth floor, and it's it also just like Cinder Alley in the basement of Cinderella City. It. Looks like it's you're outside. It has lampposts and laundry hanging and balconies that you can look down upon it from up, you know, up above on the fifth floor. It's uh, got some crazy vehicles. And actually, most of our pieces that pay homage to old Denver are on C Street.
0: Or on C C Street. And
2: that stands for Convergence
0: Street. Convergence Street. All right. Rob, how is it? To see Meow Wolf uh, having blossomed like this, really in your childhood backyard.
1: Oh, it's amazing. I mean, just to see this city grow from when I was born back in the 80s and just to see a lot of artists out there getting their work out there, you know, and getting paid for it, you know, working hard is just it really is like a dream because, I mean, I love this city and the three of us really love this city. It really has made me happy especially being a young urban kid you know going around the neighborhood and doing my artwork murals and stuff like that you know that was this is really great it's our time to shine i guess
0: hmm pamela uh, i want to pick up on something rob said there which is that it's nice to have had this gig and for it to have been paid we know that artists had an especially difficult time in the pandemic do you want to reflect a little bit on on that and maybe contrasting that with the meow wolf experience
2: Sure, I feel like I I had a really lucky pandemic experience. <laughs> Honestly, more so than than many artists. I just happened to have a lot of projects come to fruition right about the time that the pandemic hit. I'm also an educator. I am a full time high school teacher at Dakota Ridge High School. I teach jewelry, metal smithing, uh, sculpture, and uh, ceramics. And during the pandemic, with my autoimmune issues, I just dis- didn't want to teach in person. The district gave me an opportunity to take a break and I was able to just focus on all the the crazy art projects I had going on which were all coming to a head right at that moment. So I definitely think my experience with the pandemic I was very lucky to keep working and doing what I love and I didn't have to go, you know, work at Costco or something, you know. <laughs>
0: mm. I'm amazed by all of the hats you wear just hearing you list them all. And how are you doing as an educator now? I, I feel like I should ask.
2: We're back and it's strange. Uh, luckily, <laughs> most of my kids are smart enough to keep their masks on their face. They're mostly vaccinated, but it's kind of the mask fight all the time. We're always asking kids to get them on their nose and things like that. But um, I'm so glad to be back in person and not trying to do Zoom class with sculpture and metal smithing. Yeah um that's just awful yeah
0: well i wonder if before we go y'all might reflect on what it feels like to walk through meow wolf denver if you've not had the experience thus far in santa fe or las vegas i was at a loss for words for how to describe my experience in santa fe i mean it was just so otherworldly immersive i guess is the is the word du jour but i don't know rob Andrew, Pamela, why don't you each take a stab at what it feels like to be in there? Rob, you want to start?
1: Oh, I I didn't want to leave. I mean, it's sad when you leave and go out the doors and see the sign. You're like, I want to go back in. It's just (laughs) so many things to do. The experience is great. I mean, everyone's having a great time and, you know, everyone's talking with each other. Oh, have you seen this? No, let's go see it. And, you know, everyone's sharing, you know, how happy they are and their experience. And it's just really cool to see everyone interact with it. I can't wait to go again especially when you know uh, the public's allowed
0: your nostalgia for it is so sweet it reminds me of like how i felt after summer camp uh andrew (laughs) how how did it feel to be in that space
8: it's definitely otherworldly you know you're you're in these all these different scenes in the various multiverses and interacting with all these things and some things are touchable some things you can crawl through Things change as you're walking through. So it really is like kind of just surrounds you with uh, interesting, you know, sights and sounds. So it's very cool. I'm a little worried that when it's in full swing, if it's too crowded, I think that might be a little bit more difficult to get around. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know they're doing timed tickets. So maybe that will help.
0: I suppose there are reasons, covid wise, that you'd want to make that possible as well. Pamela, what have you felt in the completed Meow Wolf?
2: Well, you've heard of minimalism. <laughs> Meow Wolf's philosophy is maximalism. <laughs> so There is just stuff everywhere to look at, touch, play with, and you can play with something and not realize you know, that you've only seen the tip of the iceberg, and then you go play with it again, and it's doing something else. So uh, I feel like I could walk through, you know, we've been there several times now that it's been running and had the lights and sound on, but every time I go through, I see something new and different And oh my gosh, I never saw this room before. Where did this come from? And it's so easy to get lost. Um, But they do tell you on the elevator on the way up to the fourth floor when they're transporting you up, that if you're confused... You're supposed to be. <laughs> so, I thought that was really good because my mom, we took my mom and she was really trying to figure everything out. And she was upset that the the access to memory machines weren't work. She thought she was supposed to be collecting memories and it was giving her memories. And she was like, I think I'm supposed to be collecting them. And we were like, mom, it's okay. It's doing whatever it's supposed to be doing. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> Thanks to the three of you. Congratulations on the new work.
8: Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. And
0: you can see the works of Colorado artists Pamela Webb, Andrew Novick, and Rob Ayala at Meow Wolf's Convergence Station in Denver. It's been a summer of record bad air quality on the Front Range. There's been the wildfire smoke you can see and the ozone pollution that's invisible. Okay, not
4: entirely invisible, as CPR's Sam Brash found. Unlike most gardeners, Danica Lombardozzi doesn't look for tomatoes or cucumbers at the end of the summer. She watches for plants with brown and black splotches, and this year there are
3: plenty. A good example of a lot of ozone damage on that leaf. Look at that.
4: So that's a huge milkweed
3: leaf? Yeah, this is a huge milkweed leaf. There's just so much damage throughout almost the entire leaf.
4: Lombardozzi is a climate scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. She's showing me her ozone garden. It's a tiny plot near the entrance to the organization's Boulder Laboratory, and it's planted with ozone-sensitive plants like uh, milkweed and cutleaf coneflower.
3: It's giving us clues about the air around us.
4: The clues confirm the Front Range has a serious ozone problem. The pollutant forms in the atmosphere through the reaction of different emissions, mostly from cars and oil and gas operations. Lombardozzi's garden shows it's weakening one of the planet's best natural defenses against the climate crisis.
3: Plants, they, they perform this incredible ecosystem service to help maintain our climate in that they take carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they put it into their leaves.
4: Remember, carbon dioxide is the main gas responsible for global warming. Humanity has pumped it into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels.
3: The problem is ozone is reducing the amount of carbon that those plants could take out of the atmosphere.
4: That's because the pollutant irritates plants' airways, just like it bothers our lungs. And it also means cutting ozone pollution could help forests and crops suck up even more carbon. According to one study, in an ozone-free world, plants would lock up 15% more greenhouse gases than they do now.
3: It is a double whammy. If we reduce ozone pollution, we will be able to breathe easier. And we are helping to reduce the amount of carbon that is in our air because our plants can grow bigger and store more carbon.
4: And it's why the plant damage doesn't entirely depress lombardozi. They're wounds on a critical ally against climate change, but wounds people could probably heal if we got serious about ozone pollution. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Folk singer Woody
0: Guthrie released Dust Bowl Ballads in 1940, which explored droughts, dust storms, and mismanaged farmland.
8: On the 14th day of April of 1935, there struck the worst of dust storms that ever filled the
0: sky. Well, this album inspired Fort Collins musician Logan Farmer. Farmer wanted to write his own concept album, imagining songs that farmers might sing in the face of climate change. The debut record morphed into an exploration of his own climate anxiety. We spoke last summer, and Logan, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much for having me. So your new album is called "Still No Mother," and how's your climate anxiety right now?
9: It's a it's a constant struggle, you know, um, and it's a it's a difficult reality to live in. Um, I don't think that we can often comprehend it, so I, you know, just like everybody else, you know, I get distracted and I watch the bad TV and I don't think about it for a while and then I remind myself, I don't know, of that understanding.
0: Do you think that this album was made in part to be, uh, for lack of a better term, preachy? I mean, is it that you want to make sure people redirect their attention to climate change? Yeah, you know, I
9: mean, I think when I write I like to pretend I have control over what I'm writing. Uh, But this particular record, I mean, it it turned into something that I didn't expect it to. And uh, I don't think it's preachy. I think it it could be any crisis that you're facing in life. It just so happened for me to be climate anxiety, which is something that I think, you know, we're all dealing with in our own ways.
0: Yeah. And so this was very much a way for you to work through your own Anxiety. We'll talk more about that. But here's the first track. It's called River Black.
5: In some kind of protest, I know it's true. I paralyze each moment. The whole man is his age, the river play. When all my times through Will you not say My name Each day
0: So in that we hear lyrics like The home I knew is ash, the river black Talk about prescient, my goodness why did you decide that this this tune should be the entry point of the album?
9: Yeah, well, that was one of the first uh, songs I wrote. I knew that I wanted to write a, um, an album about climate change, but I didn't really know how to go about doing it.
8: Mm-hmm.
9: Uh, and, I, and then I actually read this book by uh, Paul Kingsnorth, who's a... Um, He's a, he's a fiction writer, but he also is an environmentalist. Um, and he wrote this book called Savage Gods about uh, kind of just writing being this ancient and kind of elemental force. Uh, and that kind of, I think, was a big inspiration for me. Um, this, this song just kind of came out of that. And um, it's kind of about, you know, trying to hold on to the present and trying to hold on to memories uh, psychologically while you stand on the precipice of this, you know, impending crisis which to me felt like a pretty good jumping off point for the rest of the record, uh, which is, of course, about, you know, living within that reality and understanding it, because often there's almost like a self-defense mechanism that prevents us from really grasping uh, the reality of it.
0: How did you realize that this wasn't going to be an album imagining other people's songs? Because you thought, gosh, maybe I will imagine what farmers would sing in the face of climate change. But it, it really became writing for your own catharsis. That, that was an evolution.
9: Yeah, it was. Um, it was unintentional, for sure. And I think, um, looking back at it now, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of art that addresses the psychological ramifications of uh, the climate crisis. And so I think in that way, it's a little bit unique. Um, I've written a lot of you know, more storytelling kind of songs before and more, you know, fictional characters, but this something, this is something that just was really hitting home for me. You know, it was just something that I've, I've, I've been a little obsessed with, with the climate crisis for a while now. So it was inevitable, I think.
0: I wonder what sorts of decisions you've made in your life or changes you've made choices. You've made Logan around climate change. Like, it, what's What's been your decision about what your family should look like and stuff like that?
9: Oh, sure. Yeah, you know, um, it's one of those things that when you really when you really get deep into it, you start to realize that everything you consume is is you're kind of making an ethical decision. And so yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I try to eat a completely plant-based diet, for instance, and I, I'm not having kids and all that all that kind of fun stuff. but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you know, I mean every every action you do, helps, I think. But it is, you know, I think humans, we're just we're natural consumers. That's what we do. And so I think if you can try your best to ethically consume and to do the research, compost, all, all the stuff you could do, all the stuff that you are aware is out there, uh, just educate yourself and try to make ethical decisions. That's what I do, at least. And I'm not an expert by any means, but the information's out there.
0: A few of the songs on this new album also have music videos. Y- you made a video for one track called Roam Through a Fog.
5: So it is written I'm afraid of myself For this in I remain someone more room Find a timer.
0: Mm, gonna need
5: more room Find a climb the wall.
0: In this video, there's a farmer. Tell tell me about the farmer and what we see on screen. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so the, the
9: video uh, was directed by my friend and, and frequent collaborator uh, Ben Ward, who's just he's an amazing um, photographer and cinematographer here in Fort Collins. But uh, yeah, no, he um, he spent some time in uh, eastern Colorado. He spent a couple of days with this cattle rancher that he was introduced to, and um, the video itself is, is essentially a uh, it's almost like a mini documentary. It's just the uh, the, the daily routine of this rancher, um, and it's it's yeah, 16 millimeter film, beautiful, almost has like a Terrence Malick uh, kind of look to it. But the the video itself is very hyper realistic, and um, you know, I, I think that it's it's important to acknowledge this issue as not being something that's foreign or something that can just be discussed by you know scientists or like god forbid politicians but um it's, it's a reality it's a reality that we're all living in and it's affecting all normal people and so i just wanted to show one of those normal people uh living their life and it, it's yeah it, he, he did a beautiful job in the it is it's amazing
0: so uh the last song on the album no one owes us anything seems to be sort of the most direct when it comes to the theme of climate anxiety
5: Party. 40 years later and there's no more eyes I'm gonna end my days on a kitchen net Everything together better add up to a lot Place on the wall where I paint my hand Gonna betray the call of modern too Terrified every time the service drops
0: Say just a few words about this song.
9: Yeah, um, yeah. So like you said, that's the last track on the album, um, and it's kind of about uh, like the collective guilt that we share for what we've done to the planet. Um, and it's kind of it's a it comes from a place of kind of bitterness. It's kind of where I was a little bit of resentment at the time. Um, and it's just kind of you know about how we may not deserve anything less than what we've been given.
0: Yeah, we're not owed any type of quarter. You know, I mean, from this elephant in the room. You have a really lovely voice and the instrumentation on this record is so lush. There are also field recordings on the album. And in fact, the album ends on the sound of seabirds and glacier chunks falling into the Atlantic. Yeah. I really feel transported when I listen. Do do you think Woody Guthrie would approve?
7: Um,
9: Yeah, it's hard to say, maybe, but, you know, I think um, he might.
0: Fort Collins musician Logan Farmer, we spoke just about a year ago. His debut album about living through climate change is Still No Mother. And that is our show for today, and these are our people
3: Carl Bielek,
0: Allie Butner,
3: Anthony Cotton,
0: Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher,
5: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes,
6: Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill,
5: Pedro Lumbrano,
6: Patrice Mondragon,
0: Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Monica Castillo and Michael Elizabeth Sackis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Oh